Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Rob Schultz. We're at Nomia Vineyards uh, in Sheridan. Mm. Uh, it's July 6, 2020. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, first question: Why wine? Why grapes? Uh, it was kind of it was a, a long path to get there. So uh, I wanted to find a way to be a farmer, uh, and I wanted to. Um, learn a job and a skill that I could say teach my kids um, or my grandkids. I kind of I got out of college and I uh, I realized I had no uh, real uh, skills and uh, few talents and uh, life kind of hit me pretty hard in a way that I didn't I wasn't really equipped for it so it, it took a lot of thought and studying and I knew I wanted to have a job in um, not in an office and uh, I tried it in a big tall building scrunching numbers it just wasn't for me and uh, so um, I'd been uh, living in Boston and then I moved to uh, New York City in uh, August of uh, 2001 <laughs> and uh, um, I was uh, I was there. I'd been living there three weeks before uh, September 11th happened, and I was in Manhattan on the day. And uh, um, I just I'd always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to end up on a farm at the end of my life, and that really kind of helped propel me to the idea of uh, maybe I wanted uh, to uh, hide up in the hills a little bit sooner. So. Um, it wasn't long thereafter. Uh, I moved to the south of France and was picking grapes, and uh, uh, it uh, really uh, spoke to me and appealed to me, and uh, I've been uh, pursuing it ever since. So you mentioned farming as kind of a background thing. Mm -hmm. How do you get from that to south of France picking grapes? Uh, well, um, yeah, I'd grown up in Iowa, and I'd worked on some corn farms, and I knew I didn't want to be a corn farmer. My uh, grandma had sold the family farm, uh, and uh, so uh, um, what was it that made me? I knew somebody there, but also uh, my favorite author of all time is this guy, Jean Giannot. He's from the south of France, and he spoke and wrote uh, very lyrically about um, how you could, uh, how farming in the countryside could uh, lead to a rebirth of the soil, soul and the soil. So uh, um, it was really that guy, you know, there used to be like used bookstores <laughs> and you used to be able to peruse for hours and find uh, uh, now unpublished, you know, no longer published authors and so uh, he wrote some really seminal books that spoke to my soul that helped me uh, think maybe the south of France would be it and um, I knew somebody who knew somebody who said that if you show up in around September you can pick grapes and uh, uh, it was amazing you know it was such a change from living in Brooklyn and working in Manhattan and trying to I had the vague uh, artistic and literary aspirations and uh, but also w uh, having worked on farms and um, really longed for that sense of belonging uh, kind of the wine industry really presents a synthesis of a lot of those things so you get to the south of France and you're picking grapes and you're and you're, and you're finding you like it so mm -hmm. do you at, at what point do you think it's something you want to keep pursuing, and at, at, at what point do you start to feel like you need to educate yourself in a, in a, in a more in a, in a different way to, to to continue? Yeah, pretty instantly. You know, it was just I'd never tasted a grape that tasted so good. I'd never um, smelled the smell of a, a fermenting vat of wine, and um, having really only ever seen corn and soybean farming. Uh, 
it was amazing to me that you could, uh, w you know, f farm something that interesting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm almost 20 years in now and I'm still learning and I expect to be, con you know, continually humbled and in the process of learning how to do this as a, in a, in a better way for the rest of my life. So it's a unique challenge and uh, in a lot of ways it's uh, an athletic endeavor. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of outdoor walking and um, hard physical labor and uh, uh, yeah, especially uh, with the added uh, wrinkle of being a homesteader and um, growing all our own food and we uh, heat our home with wood I split all summer. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a great way to uh, uh, live an uh, uh, active and athletic life, if you so choose. Mm -hmm. So take us through, uh, after, you, after you're in the south of France, take us through what happens next. So from the south of France, I moved to Barcelona and went to, um, I discovered a wine, uh, professional winemaking school in the uh, Cava region called INCAVI, which in, uh, stands for the National Institute of Cava and Wine. And so I got to live in like a flea bag hotel in downtown Barcelona and take a train through the mountains to, um, a city called Via Franca del Penedes, which is uh, the center of cava production, um, and study for just si about six months. I think I was the pretty sure I was the first American that had ever attended. I might probably be the last, and uh, um, it was uh, it was great. I learned a ton. We got to uh, work in wine cellars in um, cava country, and uh, people from all over Spain attended, and. Uh, I did, after you know, knocking on cellar doors, quickly realize uh, there weren't too many wineries that really wanted to give an American kid a learning position in the wine. They had people who knew what they were doing there. And uh, so um, from there, I moved to uh, Sonoma, California, where I kind of um, put my uh, put myself to work and started learning in the field. I had hoped, uh, well, my plan was to attend UC Davis. So I stopped in Davis on my way out and got the, figured out the prereqs and what I'd need to do to apply. And they had a job board and I saw a listing for Harvest at, uh, to work in the, the laboratory at Ravenswood, which at the time was like a million cases, a bottling line that never shut down. And uh, it was a really great uh, first gig, you know, um, and uh, it, it made me realize I'm not uh, a lab guy, and um, and also that I, I wanted to be uh, I wanted to work kind of closer to the land. I still had it in mind that I'd like to work in the vineyards, but it's really hard. I didn't know how to get in, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I spent a year at Ravenswood, and then I did uh, I, I switched over to a family-run vineyard called Gunlock Bunshu, uh, also in Sonoma. Uh, as a cellar worker, it was also cool, you know, hands-on winemaking and right outside the vineyard. And then I, I got to know their vineyard manager uh, at one of their sites, a man named Phil Katuri, who's uh, uh, very well regarded as an uh, organic farming guru in Sonoma and Napa. And so I went to work for him for about four years and uh, really just soaked it up. We farmed some of the first biodynamic vineyards in California. And uh, I just learned a ton. Mm -hmm. From there, I came to Oregon. Why? So uh, uh, I was. It was 2008, and I was planting a vineyard in like rocky soil, and it was 110 degrees out, and uh, there was so much smoke in the air from the forest fires that you could look directly at the sun at like 11 in the morning. And all the guys I was working with were like making the sign of the cross and talking about the apocalypse. Because it just was eerie, you know, the sky's green and everybody's coughing. And uh, uh, I was like, man, I don't know about this California shit. And I couldn't afford a house, uh, you know. Um, and uh, I bought a bottle of Oregon Pinot Noir and it was, it was delicious. And uh, I was like, I'm gonna go check it out. I was, uh, 
uh, probably recently out of a relationship or another, and uh, it's just me and my dog, and uh, we just um, jumped in the truck and came here camping for a week, and I met a bunch of great people and got a job offer and uh, was here for the end of harvest and just kind of stayed. Where, where was the first place you worked? I worked for uh, the first uh, people to offer me a job were uh, David and Jason Lett at the Irie Vineyards. And um, I uh, met them by just uh, going into the tasting room. And they'd been looking for somebody to help plant vineyards. And uh, uh, I got here to work harvest, I think, like three days after David died. So it was a real time of transition for the Letts, and it was it was great to get to know you know the original pioneers of the Oregon wine industry, and um, really introduced me to a lot of great people. And ultimately, they weren't uh, they weren't looking to expand their vineyards at that time. So um, after a good while, I switched over to working for Joe Dobbs at Wine by Joe, and farmed a couple hundred acres for them, and. Um, Got to travel around the state looking at other vineyards because they buy vineyards from all over. So really, again, a really great learning experience and working with um, some, you know, passionate, excited people building a business. And it was cool. Tell me about your initial impressions of, of Oregon, especially coming from having worked in, having been in Europe, having been in California. How did Oregon compare? Man, I just, as soon as I got here, I loved it. I don't know, the people, here remind me of uh, Midwest friendliness, um, welcoming and open and kind. Uh, obviously, um, yeah, they're just there's just more of an open culture where you can call a stranger up and ask for advice on how to do your job, and you might end up with a best friend. You might talk for an hour, um, and uh, uh, the weather really. I prefer it, you know, especially as uh, when you're working outside. Uh, my ideal ambient air temperature is 62. Above that, um, walking a vineyard, you get pretty sweaty and gross. And uh, uh, so I love the weather. Um, it seemed affordable for a working class guy to be able to buy a house and maybe someday a farm. Uh, you know, if it all works out, and uh, it's just uh, it's just great here, you know. And it's way less flammable than California. Uh, it seems like I, I could see the way it's going in California 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. the place is just a tinderbox, and it keeps getting warmer and hotter, and uh, forest fires are more frequent every year. So. Um, feel like in a lot of ways Oregon pulled me here by what it's like but also um, I was pushed here too as uh, I've always been fairly alarmed about climate change and the way things are going which is why I'm attracted to organic and regenerative farming and uh, why I've dedicated myself to it and um, yeah it's uh, yeah yeah I love moving to Oregon was the the best decision I ever made but uh, nobody else should move here. It's it's all full. Totally full. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it rains all the time. Yeah, um, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you've been, you've been at Dobbs. Tell me what happens after after you're, you're working on Dobbs. I, after Dobbs, I got an offer to uh, a farm at Stoller. So I spent about six or seven years there. Uh, it was really great. It was. Um, Really good opportunity to take over a farm and kind of uh, improve grape quality. Uh, about plant a bunch too, so we grew it to about 200 acres. Uh, again, um, uh, really, uh, you know, uh, Bill Stoller is a kind, good person, uh, and uh, is a very centrally located and obvious vineyard. So, you know, everybody drives past it, so everybody can see whether you're doing a good job or not. <laughs> and um, it was interesting. It was—it's a very fertile site. It had been once Oregon's um, biggest turkey farm, so the soil was full of nitrogen, and those vines grew with reckless abandon. And uh, uh, you know, it was—it was a good challenge to be able to find vine balance in that setting. Mm -hmm. And uh, f 
from uh, I've, I've done some bouncing um, so from Stoller. I moved, I, uh, I worked for Results Partners, which is one of the bigger vineyard management companies, about for about three years, and uh, I got to farm their uh, smaller organic sites for them, uh, um, some of their more high-end ones. So uh, places like Winderly and Alexana, um, Fairsing. And uh, it was just cool. I got to work in almost every uh, little sub-region here. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of driving and a lot of, you know, uh, 400 acres divided into like 25 different sites meant I was, I was driving six, eight hours a day sometimes, you know. And not a lot of time to walk the vineyards because you're bouncing here and there. Um, and... Uh, in the meantime, I've been developing my own little farm out here, and uh, so uh, I've recently um, started running a small vineyard management company called Martinez Vineyard Service. It's about 200 acres of all uh, organic vineyard. Um, main client is Lemelson, and uh, we also farm at Roots, and then a couple other small sites. Uh, so if I had my druthers, I would always work for organic and uh, uh, biodynamic sites um, but it's hard to turn down work sometimes mm -hmm. so let's talk about this the development of this first and I'll go back into sure that. so you mentioned this is kind of a parallel part you're, you're yeah you're, you're, so tell me about finding this site about starting the project here and what, what you were what you're going what you're going for what's the goal here okay so yeah um, so the fr my first friend I made in Oregon ended up uh, becoming my wife Anne. And, uh, you know, we she was my neighbor and landlord and, uh, um, you know, we just fell for each other. And we she also wanted to be a farmer. She uh, at the time was a winemaker at Northwest Wine Company. And uh, she's a former uh, classically trained uh, pastry chef um, and uh, who's pretty passionate about uh, organic food and or, uh, organic food production. Um, so, you know, um, I think uh, like a lot of Oregonians, when, after you buy flannel, you uh, invest in a dozen chickens. And uh, uh, she, she got some ducks and I got some chickens. And that was like, it's, chickens are a gateway drug to farming, you know? Um, so uh, we started, I was driving around, like kind of looking at properties. This was at the middle of the, the real estate crash mm -hmm. so we found this property that was right next to bethel heights and it was 30 acres of jewelry soil that we couldn't quite afford but it really like it got us excited um that yeah wow we could actually do this you know and that's now some high-end vineyard i forget which one and um so this was like the third property second or third property we looked at and uh um, the first thing we noticed was that it all slopes south and we want to plant a vineyard but we want to plant a vineyard in a way that's um, like super naturally organic and um, uh, we uh, we had also started a small flock of those miniature sheep before we bought our own farm because we were living out in the country and we had a little barn and stuff um, and uh, so we came out here and uh, it slopes south and the guy who was selling it said yeah I had my compass and I'm looking at it and I'm looking at Ann, and she's looking at me, and he's like, yeah, it's just a shame it all slopes north. Otherwise, I'd be able to get a much better price for this. And I said, yes, it's, a, it's quite a shame it's sloping north. <laughs> and uh, um, then we found some chanterelles just like growing in the middle of the property, and Ann well, was like, you should buy this. Let's buy this now. And uh, that was like the last chanterelle we ever found on the property, but uh, um, they're just over the hill. Yeah. And, uh, um so yeah we just bought it and uh the house was like a complete disaster we had to it was like we had to tear everything out so the first thing we did was get pregnant and start having kids and um which is great you know it's um and so we've just been building this farm up uh uh and learning how to farm i think uh uh we weren't quite humble enough uh i think if we'd been humble, we would have never done this, you know? You have to have, like, the spirit that you can do anything. Yeah. And uh, obviously, we can't do everything all at once, but um, 
we try and raise all our own food as, or as much as possible. And uh, I think the, in, if you want to speak about uh, regenerative and organic agriculture, mm -hmm. I think the most important thing a farmer can do is raise the next generation of farmers. So I'm never bummed out that uh, um, we spend an inordinate amount of time with our children because uh, I think it's really important with uh, to, it's just, I can't imagine farming without kids, mm -hmm. you know? And um, so, uh, if I uh, haven't planted my vineyard yet, uh, it's okay, because I'm teaching my kids to read. It's pretty <laughs> fun. And uh, so yeah, we have uh, two flocks of sheep. We're, uh, we have one flock of miniature sheep that we're raising to graze vineyards with. Um, we started with, uh, there's a uh, breed of sheep called the uh, South, the baby doll Southdown. It's a, it's a heritage breed that uh, was never bred to be large. Uh, it's very short and fat and looks like a teddy bear. Uh, we found after a few years of working with them that their wool isn't that great uh, as a product uh, and knits and uh, spins yarn. Um, and so we bred in some uh, a different breed called the Shetland, which is equally small but has a much finer fleece and better mothering instincts. Instincts, and then we're working with some other genetics. It's kind of fun, you know, um, creating our own little breed, sheep breed. You know, uh, we have a goal in mind of what we want to want them to look like. Mm -hmm. We're trying to breed like essentially the cutest sheep known to man um, and it's it's working out pretty good so far and then we recently started a second flock of sheep of uh, dairy sheep and uh, uh, this is our first year of making cheese uh, the ultimate goal would be that someday from this property we can uh, make both wine and cheese on the same hillside and uh, be able to pair it uh, the property is really interesting because the, um, in addition to being volcanic soil, uh, the line that separates the Willamette Valley and the McMinnville-Evier from the coastal mountain range runs through our property about where our barn is. So that hillside right there um, would be considered uh, not AVA, not in the Willamette Valley, but the hillside below our house is and it's really we do have a rain shadow here where there's it's often raining below our house but you can stand in front of our house and it's dry so it's a really unique interesting property to be able to someday develop in that way mm -hmm. in the meantime we eat very well and uh um we're just having a blast out here you know um so you had talked earlier about uh, initially going kind of going to school for or winemaking and, mm -hmm. and, and thinking in your mind you might be like a flying winemaker so what point did you go from that into the path of, of, of grapes and viticulture well yeah any like um, interview you read with a winemaker they always talk about how wine is made in the vineyard and uh, having always wanted to be a farmer uh, it was it was always kind of my goal to do both um, and uh, I find you know once I started working in the vineyards um, my desire to run a bottling line line and uh, has waned and work in a cave uh, so uh, I've just you know my career now has been set as a vineyard guy um, and when it uh, and I'm I'm cool with it. I, I, I like yeah, um, I like seeing how you can uh, improve wine quality with simple farming techniques. It's fascinating, and I like working with a lot of the winemakers I've worked with. You know, there's winemakers here who really respect uh, farming, and um, it's great. So let's talk about those those simple techniques or so-called simple techniques. Uh, obviously, biodynamic, organic. Uh, mm -hmm. First of all, tell me what, what appeals to you about organic, biodynamic, regenerative agriculture, and then tell me about learning that and about learning those kind of techniques to improve sure. quality. Yeah, um, so growing up, again, it dates back to growing up in Iowa and being surrounded by corn. And like, uh, if you haven't lived there and seen the 
environmental impacts of industrial agriculture firsthand. You can read about it and you can watch documentaries, but um, early on I was uh, uh, pretty uh, aware of environmental concerns and um, I think it was like in college I realized the river that ran through my town that was like green and murky um, and nothing lived in it except like gross carp uh, had once been crystal clear and teeming with life and the natives had been able to like dive to the bottom and gather clams and mussels and uh, um, you know, I knew there, you know, the cancer rates are, are very high when you live next to conventionally farmed uh, cornfields. And it's also just uh, super boring and uh, dehumanizing. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I also like, um, you know, once you try your first. Uh, farmer's market tomato. It's like a mind-blowing experience and um, you know uh, you can't separate the hedonism from the hard work when it comes to far, you know a, a well-grown tomato. It's a lot of work but that pleasure that you get from something that's grown by somebody who really gives a shit uh, it can't be matched. It's unparalleled, you know? So, um, forget the original question, but how I got to organic farming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess I have very little interest in, uh, conventional farming. Now I come home when I'm, uh, if I'm spraying a vineyard with a, a synthetic chemical, I got to like take my clothes off and wash them in a separate load. And I'm worried about, uh, my children um, up here, uh, the water's pure. Uh, my meat doesn't have hormones and antibiotics in it, and it tastes better. So um, I, what uh, interests me in organic and regenerative farming is uh, manifold. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know what's most important to me, but I know that like I really like to eat and eat well, and I know that I, I do because of the way I farm. Um, now, biodynamics, I learned a lot from that. I'm not like a true believer in the, um, the whole shebang, but what I really took from that uh, was the idea of a farm as a, a whole organism. And uh, traditionally, farming would entail both livestock and crop growing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and if you if you can't in a world before you could just go to wilco or ovs and buy a bag of fertilizer you had to fertilize your vineyard somehow um so uh i'm a big fan of the uh the ancient writers about viticulture and the earliest uh written books on viticulture from 2,000 years ago recommend both cover cropping and adding manure when your vines get weak. So I'm uh, trying to find a way to farm both traditionally and modern and organic and well all at once. I'm curious about the the progression of that as you come to Oregon, which is a mm -hmm. place that is more progressive when it comes to farming methods. I would I would disagree on that. Okay. I think that Oregon uh, should be more progressive when it comes to farming. Yes, it has done great things to preserve farmland, um, and yes, we have that image. We're all in hiking boots and flannel. We all need a shave, um, but. I, I see a lot of people in the Oregon wine industry that are very, like, uh, timid when it comes to organic farming. Um, if you look at the Oregon agriculture industry as a whole, uh, between hazelnuts, which are, like, nuked with every nasty herbicide known to man, and the grass seed industry, which is just, like, uh, you know, growing grass seed for golf courses. Uh, um, I don't know, you know, I think 
we there's there's room for improvement. Mm -hmm. I don't want to like. I'm still a newcomer to Oregon. I've only been here for I don't know, when, however many you know, um, twelve, thirteen years. So I don't really like to criticize Oregon as a whole, but I I was surprised at how um, how how few people are actually uh, interested in organic farming. Why do you think it is? It's more expensive, for sure, and um, it's more difficult. Uh, and uh, I think it, it's because of that, for the most part. I think that um, Oregon is outdoorsy, but uh, when you compare the, um, the amount of hippiness, I think, like coming from Sonoma, there's a few more hippies down in Northern California than up here. And uh, um, the, or the organic uh, farming explosion was bigger there than here. Um, so uh, I, think, uh, I think it's great, you know. Um, I love how Oregon, you leave a city and all of a sudden you're in the middle of an open field. Um, it bums me out when that open field is just grass seed. I'm not a big fan of lawns or golf courses or uh, whatever all that grass seed is for. Um, and I just know you can see what they're spraying on it. it uh, and all that runs off into the water and gets in our fish. And... But that's just me. So with your with your various the various places you've worked, and then of course with Results Partners, and now with Martinez, mm -hmm. you focused especially recently focused on organic and biodynamic. Have you sought out people who are looking to change, or have you mostly gone with people who are kind of already believers as well? A little bit of both. You know, I'm not a persuasive dude, uh, and so um, uh, I've never been like a standard bearer. Maybe I should. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, I should probably go out there a little bit more and kind of try and convince people. But um, I'm still trying to prove myself that it can be done. And, uh, you know, it, it's possible, but it is expensive. It's more expensive. And uh, Oregon, you know, the economics are a little bit tighter because uh, often the yields are much lower. So your, your price per ton on the grapes is, uh, if you have fewer tons and your costs are higher, um, it, it's hard to make it pencil out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, yeah, in Napa, Sonoma, people are paying $10,000 a ton. People in Oregon like to pay, you know, 2000 a ton. It, it, changes the calculus on it. So when you do have people who want to work with it, what are, do you find some more motivations? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, yeah, it's interesting, especially when it comes to biodynamics. I remember I was at an early wine biodynamics forum and I was just kind of like listening to the big wigs get into an argument. I think uh, Randall Graham was arguing with Alan York. These are like it, in the biodynamic world, these are big, big names, and uh, um, uh, everybody was talking about how biodynamics works, but they were talking about marketing. You know, if you talk about the moon and the stars and herbal medicine, uh, people love that shit. Um, you know, one of the most important things I've learned about farming biodynamically is that the number one rule for a vineyard manager is that when the photographer is there with the winemaker and the horns to get out of the way, because every winemaker wants their picture with some horns, and, uh, and then they get their picture taken and then they leave, and you can go about your business. Um, uh, so, um, but yeah, there's, so I think there's some of that. People want that kind of like green label, but I think there's also just some people who are passionate about wine that's pure and true mm -hmm. and um, farming that the right way. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's more and more evidence out there that these uh, synthetic fungicides that you spray on your grapes end up in your wine. Mm -hmm. And there's gonna be a reckoning as the consumers become more aware. It's already happening, you know, so. Um, and then, you know, there's more and more evidence that 
herbicides cause cancer in farm workers. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think people, as they are becoming more aware and they care about people, uh, uh, think you're going to see more of this. From a purely, from a from purely wine point of view, what is the if someone asks you what's the difference between conventionally farmed grape and an organic biodynamic grape, what is the what is the flavor? How do you describe the difference? What is the difference in the flavor of wine? Um, I would say that it's hard to determine, but um, there's real evidence that show that organically farmed grapes can lead to more complex wine, um, especially in the hand of the right winemaker. So much of what you do in the vineyard can sometimes get hidden by winemaking decisions that often I wonder how true it is that real good wine is made in the vineyard, you know? Um, uh, but uh, for the consumer, I would just point to the fact that with an organic wine, you're, less, you're much less likely to have cancer-causing fungicides in your wine. So you named your, your, your vineyards here, vineyards to be no, no Mia. Mm -hmm. tell, me, tell me why. So uh, we, uh, it a lot of great vineyard names are taken and trademarked, right? So it takes a while to come up with something good. And we didn't want something dumb like Stone Panther or whatever, you know, it's going to be. Um, you know, uh, there's just a lot, a lot of generic names out there. So we found an esoteric Greek deity that's the personification of mountain pastures, a uh, nymph with a very uh, small um, body of history that uh, uh, was the female personification of mountain pastures in Arcadia. Mm -hmm. And so that we want our vineyard to also be a pasture uh, kind of made sense for us. We might change the name. We'll see, you know, I think we let the trademark lapse, but uh, um, uh, uh, it was, you know, you got to pick a name at some point. We toyed with the idea of Ann and Rob's farm. That's still out there, you know. Uh, um, yeah, that's that's where the name comes from, and um, I don't know. What do you think? Decent name, right? It's a pretty good name. Okay, I don't know. My phone kept trying to change his note to Nokia. Yeah, that, was, that, was that happens. That happens. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about the kind of being out here, doing mm -hmm. everything kind of holistically on the farm. Mm -hmm. Talk about the, uh, the 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 mixture of of raising family, raising a farm, having a business outside, uh -huh. balancing all of that. Man, it's tough, you know? And um, I really thought I'd plant a vineyard in the first couple of years of moving out here. And once we had kids in that first year, um, that, you know, Anne really like said, hey, listen, you can have this farm and this vineyard, or you can have this family, you know? You gotta choose between, I was coming home and building fences and getting ready, prepping ground, and it's just like, uh, she, you know, I want to be an active parent and a part of my kid's life. So um, if I don't mow my lawn or weed my garden, but I get to like snuggle with and read to my kids, I, I'm willing to make that trade. And uh, um, it's uh, why I have the job now. It allows me a little more flexibility to be with my kids and to be there for them. And, uh, pretty used to leaving for work at, you know, five in the morning. So you don't see anybody before you leave. And then if I don't get home till like six or seven on a spray day, everybody's grouchy and in a bad mood when I get home and I'm grouchy and in a bad mood. So um, it's real tricky, especially in the summer months when everything's going on at once. Um, it's really hard to find a balance. And uh, all the successful organic farmers I know don't have kids, or once they do have kids, they get out of the game, you know? So that's why we've never really tried to be like a market farmer and sit at the farmer's market seven days a week. And um, we just want to do everything ourselves. And uh, um, yeah, and then again, like I've, I've studied a lot of these uh, handover in, uh, generations um, in the wine industry, uh, both uh, who have people I've worked for who have kids who um, resent their father's job for keeping them away from them and uh, and 
the, those that reject it because they want to rebel, and then those who've really taken up the mantle. And uh, I've um, I talked to a lot of like uh, dads who've uh, successfully kind of cloned themselves, if you were, you know, like I talked to Ted Castile and Harry Peterson Nedry and Joel Myers and uh, all these guys who um, whose, whose children are now taking the reins of their wineries and uh, just to get advice as to how they did it, you know, because I don't, I don't know how to be a dad and uh, I'm just trying, so, uh, um, sorry, UPS truck. All good. And, uh, um, so yeah, one of the things that, you know, I think I mentioned it earlier that really appealed to me, uh, about, uh, being a vineyard per a farmer and, uh, a, a wine farmer is that it's a skill set that you can, um, pass on to the next generation. And so, uh, there's things I learned in life that I learned specifically so that I could teach my kids how to do mm -hmm. and growing grapes is one of them. Mm -hmm. So with your new company with Martinez, tell me mm -hmm. what you're looking for in clients or what clients are looking for in you. Why, why, how do you find the, the, your connections there? Um, looking for people who, uh, and uh, working with people who really want to um, have a hands-on farmer uh, who uh, can communicate with them on a regular basis and work with the winemaking team mm -hmm. to uh, um, improve. Uh, that's what it really interests me when you come into a vineyard that like you know you can grow better wine by just a couple of you know some simple fixes everything's simple it, well, all that's required is having a strong will to see that it gets t taken care of um, and done so I'm looking for you know nuts I'm looking for good clients that um, are good to work with and respectful uh, I think being that farming is kind of in the trades and you're often dirty and kind of stinky, um, it's pretty easy to uh, not respect somebody like that. I've found that like uh, there's just, um, it, it's, it's easy to uh, assume that that dirty person maybe isn't like the, the uh, sharpest tool in the shed, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so. Yeah, I like working with people who understand that, you know, uh, dirty ain't stupid, you know. <laughs> How do you judge a vineyard that you haven't worked with before? Uh, I look for what's living in the vineyard that's not a grapevine um, as an uh, indicator of uh, biological balance and health. I look at a vine to see what its balance is like, if it's overly vegetative or kind of weak. I look for areas of weakness to see if uh, things are declining. Um, y you know, uh, you can you can you can tell. You know, my personal aesthetics are that I don't want a vineyard looking like a golf course or like a hazelnut farm or like a field of corn in Iowa. Um, and there's a lot of vineyards wh that are immaculately manicured and there's a little bit of grass stubble and everything else is just a grape and um it looks like fucking eastern iowa corn farm to my and that just doesn't speak to me and i don't think that i think that sort of farming generally comes from a kind of a reductionist worldview and um that kind of worldview generally doesn't lend itself to good winemaking so I'm interested more in those vineyards that maybe look a little fuzzier. There's maybe, uh, you know, my father-in-law would want to see it get mowed and the dandelion sprayed, but um, uh, I like dandelions, you know. I see sometimes some of these vineyards that I know people might say look like shit because it looks a little weedy, and I see wildflowers that are feeding native pollinators. Um, so I think it's a balance of both looking at vine health and then looking at ecological health. Mm -hmm. Me personally. 
you talked earlier uh early on about the, the kind of artistic artistic aspirations and early early on in your life uh-huh i'm curious how that how that's translated in in your work um yeah, we'll see you know i've kind of put my artistic ambitions on the side as i've uh i'm i'm artfully raising children <laughs> let's say and uh um you know um we'll see how it manifests itself in time so obviously we're talking to you in July of 2020. We're still dealing with the yeah. COVID pandemic right now. I'm curious how it's changed. Obviously your home life probably hasn't changed a lot being out Not here. Not at all. <laughs> Hardly ever, you know, <laughs> like uh, we were already homeschooling our kids. Um, uh, we do socialize though. We like to have big dinner parties and uh, uh, we like to cook for people. We like to see people. Um, so we're a little more isolated, but we were definitely, as we kind of dropped out of society about 10 years ago when we moved up here, um, we were kind of prepped for it. And uh, we didn't set out to be homeschoolers, but we ended up being homeschoolers. It's, it's been really good for us. Uh, we miss our friends. Um, I think the last like in February before the world went to hell, um, we had like 14 people over for dinner and we had a big old dinner party with, it was great. Um, and we, we'll get, we'll, maybe we'll get back there someday, you know, we'll see. Um, it's funny though, because pre-COVID-19, we used to get, when we'd hang out with our friends, they'd be like, are you, when are you gonna move back to town? I mean, I mean, geez. <laughs> and, uh, they're the ones who've been calling us up and asking if we have any meat to sell and you know like so um i i i, th uh, I don't know i hate to be a, like a doom and gloom guy but uh i i think this is just the start and i think that uh um we're in a cooler spot in a warming climate so uh I think in 20 years when the Oregon, they say that we'll have a climate a lot like Sacramento in McMinnville, and which will mean that um, maybe Pinot Noir isn't the right grape for most of the Willamette Valley. We're, you know, we're about 10 degrees cooler up here in the mountains. So this, our initial goal was to grow uh, grapes for sparkling wine. We'll just see what happens in the next little while. So it's gonna go quick and uh, We'll see where the, it's, it's hard to make concrete plans when the world is in flux and uh, uh, everything's on fire, seems like. But uh, yeah, no, it hasn't been much of a change for us, you know. What about on the work side of things? Uh, you know, we give each other space more in the vineyard, but um, everybody gets a row in between them and we clean the bathrooms a little bit more, but uh, no, you know, farming is an essential activity. It's got to happen. You can't just not farm a vineyard and expect to grow grapes. You can, if you don't farm your vineyard, your neighbors can sue you because you're now uh, likely to grow fungal disease that then spreads to them. So uh, there were, at the start of this, a lot of uh, vineyard owners, client of mine included, who really thought about just mothballing their vineyards and doing minimal farming. Um, when the economy tanked and everything uh, went crazy, they just, um, I understand where they were coming from. Uh, luckily, it seems like everybody's buying more wine online. And uh, man, the tasting rooms are packed this past weekend. I don't know if you saw them driving around. So, I mean, people are wearing masks and I don't know if they're drinking out of straws or whatever they're doing, but uh, um, yeah, uh, I mean, our lifestyle, homesteading and homeschooling hasn't changed much. We already, we're already doing the thing, so. So you talked a second ago about Oregon wine future and, and uh -huh. climate change and the effects it might have. Uh, what do you see? Obviously, I know you say it's hard to make plans when things are in flux, but what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon's wine industry? What's it, what is going to happen to the industry? Um, you know, if I were a betting man, I would say that uh, uh, we're going to be changing varietals. Uh, 
and uh, varieties, I guess. And uh, I don't know. When I was at Stoller, I could get Syrah ripe at 25 and a half bricks. That leads me to believe that we could probably, in a warm year, get Cabernet ripe in the valley, in the warm spots. Mm -hmm. That generally means that you're kind of getting out of the sweet spot for growing truly epic Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir wants a cooler climate, best expressed its characteristics in years that it struggles. There's been, there haven't been too many years since I've been here where the grapes struggled to ripen and develop flavor. Just a couple, you know, mm -hmm. 2010, 2011 were pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, seems like almost every year has been warmer since. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're going to see the attractiveness of uh, Oregon land prices. Uh, you're going to continue to see the trend of big companies, both from California and uh, internationally coming and, and putting down a few hundred acres of grapes. Uh, it's doable. It's, if I can afford 20 acres, what can you know, Gallo afford. They're not here yet. They'll, I heard they're looking. I heard they're looking for 600 acres. They'll get here. So, I don't know. Um, so, uh, I think in a warmer climate, though, you can uh, increase your yields. So, it can make wine more affordable. What's really held Oregon wine back from really reaching the masses is that it's very hard for us to produce a bottle of wine at $20 and under. So we're competing, like, before I entered into the Oregon, or the wine world, I would have never spent over $12.95 on a bottle of wine. It just wouldn't have occurred to me what sort of hedonism that would be. Uh, I was also like a 20-year-old dip dipshit, so what do I know? But, um, uh, uh, so I think, you know, if we, you can get four tons to the acre, which you can in warm years, you can start looking at a bottle price that's more democratically priced. Um, but we're still just a drop in the bucket when you compare us to uh, worldwide production. What about for you? What's in your future? What's in the future here? Obviously, you have a vineyard plans on the yeah. somewhat distant horizon. Sure. Uh, hopefully not too distant. We are uh, talking to, ex you know, uh, companies to come uh, do a little bit of groundwork for us and start laying out things um, you know uh, I'm just happy uh, watching my kids grow up uh, uh, developing a new breed of uh, sheep to uh, be the cutest sheep in world history um, I think uh, cheese is the next wine. I think you're going to see more cheese making in the. I'd like to. There's already one really great uh, cheese maker in Briar Rose, who uh, you haven't talked to yet. You ought to. They're great. Really nice people. Um, I think complementary the complementary industries as well. You know, the restaurant world is improving out here. Um, hospitality is is getting there. Um, uh, so. Yeah, my personal future out here is, uh, uh, I just think about, you know, spending time with my kids, honestly, like, I, I, you know, I think, um, yeah, I think a lot of great men who accomplished great things raised pretty shitty kids, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that, mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. On the vineyard side of things, um, you talked earlier about Oregon having a ways to go uh, mm -hmm. or organically. Tell mm -hmm. me about... Uh, as you look ahead for organic farming here in the state, is it is has it changed and is it is it going to continue changing? Yeah, I think the trend line is there. I think uh, there's a pull from the consumers who are looking for um, assurance that uh, their wine is a pure product that isn't going to uh, cause them harm. I think that uh, there's a growing consensus around the body of research that uh, that leads us to understand what climate change is doing that I think what I'd like to see is people uh, really accounting for their uh, carbon footprint uh, which uh, gets to and so I think we're going to start to see um, people who are making farming decisions based on uh, more based on uh, environmental concerns. Uh, I think there's a growing trend now to limit cultivation 
because when you cultivate the ground, you release CO2. Um, I think we're going to have to look at the way we plant our vineyards. Uh, a lot of the vineyards have been planted very high density, similar to what they're doing in Burgundy um, in France, just because that's what that's Burgundy in France. Mm -hmm. um, it's really hard to achieve a vine balance. Uh, and not cultivate the ground in a tightly spaced vineyard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that we're now able to look at a lot of the decisions that people have made over the last few decades of Oregon wine being developed and look at it with, you know, clear eyes and maybe, you know, with uh, the assurance that we kind of do know what we're doing now and we can start looking at the decisions that were made to plant just like they do in Burgundy with different soils and different conditions uh, that maybe we can start making some better informed decisions that allow us to farm uh, more ecologically and better. I think that, um, I mean, there's nothing but potential here to grow wine as good as anywhere else in the world. and. Uh, uh, I think people are doing it. I think there's some great wines being produced here that taste as good as anything from any other country, you know? So, we'll see. So, last, last question for you. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious, and you're going to have a chance to show us at some point, but sure. you have a blank slate, you can design your perfect vineyard. Tell, huh. me, tell me what it looks like. Uh, so, yeah, I do have a bl fairly blank <laughs> slate up here. Small, um, separated with lots of fencing so you can move uh, miniature sheep in and out and uh, you don't have to mow it, you don't have to weed it, you don't have to spray herbicide, you don't have to sucker it, but you want to be able to move them out. I think uh, I like eight foot rows uh, from a worker's standpoint. If you're spaced at eight feet, you can have your vine head at three feet off the ground, which means you're not bending at the waist all day long. Uh, I don't know. The people who make the decisions to plant five foot rows, meaning that your head height is at like a foot and a half, which means if you're working on those vines, pruning, you're bending over all day, uh, we need to talk to those people and have them come prune for a winter to see what that does to their, their back, you know? So um, I'd like to see more ergonomically planted vineyards, more ecologically planted vineyards, and uh, um, a blank slate here uh, yeah, it would, I'm going to have an acre up here in the coast range. I'm going to have about uh, two acres down below in the uh, McMinnville AVA. Uh, uh, I think we're still focused, we still would like to produce sparkling wine. Uh, it's our favorite thing to drink, pairs with everything. Um, and then when it gets too warm to produce good sparkling wine, we'll just switch over to uh, still wine, I suppose. I don't know if that'll ever happen, but we'll see. Um, yeah, I'd like to see it so that, uh, yeah, a holistic farm where animals are part of the farming scene and uh, contribute to it. And uh, I'm really, um, I'm inspired by natural systems uh, where you'll see a bunch of chickens running around behind my sheep. Uh, that isn't just because chicken is delicious, which it is, but also they um, reduce fly populations. And so like if you look at the African savanna, you see large uh, herds of herbivores that are always followed by flocks of birds. Uh, Joel Salatin is the most famous advocate of that farming system in America. Uh, Alan Savory is another guy I've learned a lot from by just reading his books when it comes to uh, incorporating multiple species into a farming system to improve, to sequester more carbon dioxide from the soil. Um, you want to have a multi-species grazing system and you can uh, suck carbon dioxide out of the air. And I think we're not going to solve the climate crisis if farmers aren't involved. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's great about wine is it's often uh, kind of leading the charge when it comes to changing the way things are farmed because every winery has a marketing arm and uh, they love talking about farming. You know, it sells wine. So, uh, yeah. When the time comes, are you going to be the one making that sparkling wine? Uh, I'm going to let 
my wife do it. I'd, I'd like to participate, but um, she's uh, very precise and immaculate and formidable woman, and uh, she's gonna be very, she's very good at it. You'll try, when this is done, you gotta try her uh, fresh mozzarella. Every day she milks our sheep and makes cheese, and uh, we're now um, starting to age the cheese. So eventually we'll have a cave here, and uh, where and uh, we can pair wine and cheese from the same property. Um, and uh, it'll just be like, uh, yeah, hedonistic, but also a hardworking homestead. Love it. All right, that's all the questions I have for you. So Great. Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover today that we should have covered? No, uh, uh, I got plenty of life stories we'll keep <laughs> private at this point. For the next time. Next sure, time. next time, next time, uh, well, maybe we'll have uh, wine to serve and you can speak with my wife and kids. Absolutely. They're interesting too. <laughs> More interesting than me. I'm just the guy with a job, so. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much. For Thank you. Your, for your stories today, for your time, and for hosting us out here. And sure. Let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.